What does the Bible say about the modern state of Israel? Let's dive deep into the ocean of Bible prophecy on this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. And hello, everybody, and welcome to an exciting part one of two special edition of Mideast News Brief. I'm your host, Winston R. Holland. And as of this broadcast being published on June 7th, 2019, I am boarding a ship that has taken my family and me off to the beautiful sights of Alaska for our family vacation. And since I am missing two Fridays and cannot bring you guys the news this week and next, I asked if Thani Abu Hamid would come back and record a couple of shows to play while I am gone and discuss the topic of the modern state of Israel as it relates to Bible prophecy. Today, as I mentioned, is part one of two. Uh, I'm sorry, part one and part two will be published next week. So, Thanny, welcome back to Mideast News Brief. Thank you so much for having me back. And I apologize, I just been going around over here in Lebanon, so there are a few sniffles and coughs, or I you know, take a 30-second pause to... <laughs> capture myself again, you'll forgive me. No problem, and I am a talk show host, so I'm sure I'd probably find something to say to fill in that 30-second gap, so it is is all good. I I tend to run long, as if you've, especially the past few podcasts I've done, uh, I, I can talk a while apparently so i got to work on that uh, a new professional resolution to keep these shows to about an hour each um but uh but no that's great also thanny is back in lebanon he is we're yes. we're doing our very first transcontinental show so i'm very excited about that however you guys will have to forgive if at times uh we have some maybe while thanny is talking there's some gaps in what he's saying it's just uh Things are pretty good right now. Things are going pretty well right now, but it is possible that the internet could go in and out. Um, so, but thank goodness, also our our illustrious producer producer Michael Yearout is here to help keep things uh, running smoothly. And so, Michael, thank you for being back with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, so we're excited about that. And, of course, Thanny is a uh, recording artist of his own right and is very familiar with all the technical stuff. So I'm, I'm very glad for the two of them because they are the polar opposite of me. Um, so hopefully uh, we, we should be able to see things going pretty smoothly. Um, as if you listen to Episode 7 of the show, uh, you know that uh, Thanny is a full-time missionary in Lebanon. He is also a professional recording artist. And he is a seminary student, uh, and so he is uh, engaging in, in his higher education studies. And we just we had such a great time back in episode seven of the show. And Thaney is just he's just such a phenomenal individual. The more I've gotten to spend time with him, the more I've just been uh, really excited to um, be able to interact with him and work together with him. I asked him if he would come back on the show to discuss the topic of. Essentially, what does the Bible say about the modern state of Israel? Because you can look at certain passages about the regathering of Israel and say that it was fulfilled, say, in the early 500s B.C. when the Jewish exiles came back from Babylon. But as we'll see, there's actually good reason to believe that many of those scriptures that we might associate with that are not actually referring to that specific regathering. 
but rather one in the future beyond uh, the Babylonian exiles and really kind of has a, a much broader scope than, than those who came back from, uh, from Babylon. But before I get to, uh, before we get too uh, detailed, let's, let's back up a bit. And I think uh, where we want to start, Thanny, is uh, kind of start at the beginning and discuss the big picture and big ideas surrounding the issue of Israel and the church. Because there is no, you know, by no means been any type of monolithic theology surrounding this topic, you know, from the beginning no, of, yeah, from the beginning of, of the, maybe the very beginning of the church and then the first century. Um, but especially when it comes to uh, the, the, not just the topic of, there's a, the bigger theology of Israel and the church, right? But then there's the topic of the, the modern state of Israel, of course, and uh, right. a very volatile issue, a lot of different viewpoints on that. So if you would for us, just share uh, with the listeners kind of the 180,000 foot view, the kind of prevailing <laughs> theological views of Israel and the church in general to kind of give us all an idea and an overview, you know, kind of the basic ideas surrounding this topic. Well, I promise to do my best, but uh, um, first of all, I want to say that I just, I'm probably going to end up saying, that's a great question, Ryan. I don't know a lot in this broadcast. <laughs> Uh, because to be honest, when you when you first brought up the topic for this episode, you know, way back when, a couple months ago, I did not realize just how complicated this theological concept went. Um, there's literally dozens of verses, maybe upwards of forty to fifty verses that are in contention uh, between all the theologians, and uh, and then of course, even with just within just conservative Christian thought, you've got wildly branching, uh, wildly different branching views. So, so yeah, going back to Israel and the church, I, when I first uh, proposed an outline to you, I thought that this would be a good thing to start out with because if we're going to talk about Israel, if we're going to talk about modern Israel, we have, to, we have to have the perspective that Israel is still a spiritual people, that God has a plan for them, uh, even though the church in a sense, has substituted for Israel in their failure. That's what the Christianity was birthed out of that concept, um, that Israel has still got promises from God that need to be fulfilled and that will be fulfilled literally in the future. So I wanted to address from the very beginning uh, a couple of different schools of thought when it comes to studying Israel. And they are called covenantal and replacement theology. Um, replacement theology is basically the idea that uh, the church has replaced Israel, that Israel failed to um, accept Christ when he came, when God came down uh, in the form of man. They, they failed to obey the Lord at that point, and that failure uh, required God to do something drastic like creating what we call the church. And there are a lot of theologians that believe that the church has is the natural maybe evolution of Israel, that right. they'll use phraseology like we're the spiritual seed of Abraham and the natural um, next step. And so therefore we've replaced Israel. Israel is no longer a spiritual entity that is going to exist any further. And covenantal theology, covenantal theologians believe the same thing, um, typically. Uh, and so 
from the very beginning, I want to say that um, I don't think Scripture says that. I don't think that Israel is no longer a thing. Um, I believe Agreed. that the church is what I would call a temporary substitute um, for Israel and their failure, that now in this age, these last 2,000 years and however long we have left in this period of time, where the church is um, God's chosen people to bring uh, the good news and his love and hope to the world, Israel still got a plan. And and when we start right. digging into the that we see in the Old Testament made to Abraham and Moses and the Israelites um, throughout the Old Testament books, I think it'll become clear that um, a lot of that stuff hasn't been fulfilled yet. If you look at it uh, literally, if you read the Bible literally, and you expect that these promises that God made to these men um, is going to be fulfilled literally, then there's no way that we can look at these scriptures and say it's already happened. Right, and we would need a... So oh, right at the beginning. Oh, I just want to say, and I think we would need a good reason, if we were going to spiritualize certain texts, and I know, um, Thaney, I don't know if you realize this, but you do kind of cut out every every now and then. For the most part, it's great. It does cut out a little bit every now and then, so I might jump in at times and say, hey, could you repeat that last phrase? I think so far we're fine. Uh, but just okay. but just to let okay. you know. Um, but yeah, I think if you're going to spiritualize a text, you need to have a good reason for it. And and honestly, it needs to be because the New Testament uh, really tells us to sp- <laughs> to spiritualize that text, you know. Right. Um, so I, right. yeah, we I, need to have license to do that from God because it's it's a very slippery slope. The, there's there's a real huge failure when we create huge allegories out of text in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right. because the thing with allegory is that there's no room for a singular objective truth anymore. It's really just everyone's own opinion of what the allegory represents, and there's no way to know definitively what it is. I don't think that that's God's intention. And if you look at the way that Jesus, throughout his ministry, if you look at the way that he uh, interprets Old Testament scripture and even Old Testament prophecy, it's almost always very literal, and um, right. and I would, I mean, I like I said, I'm not an expert. I, I don't want to make a sweeping generalization to say it's always literal. But every time that I've seen him ever talk about Old Testament prophecy, it's been a literal fulfillment that he was talking about. Well, now, t- you know, and the scripture that comes to my mind most is the scripture. I believe it's in Zechariah, where it says, "Behold, your king is coming to you. He's." humble and mounted on a donkey. I mean, who would have really thought that the Messiah would actually fulfill that <laughs> scripture? Literally, of course the don- uh, right, yeah. of course the donkey is like a, an allegory for the fact that he's a holy man and he's humble in heart and he's riding in on a donkey. So, he's riding in with humility even though he's the king. And you know, you could kind of take that. I could I could that's probably what I would have done with a passage, you know, 2500 years ago. Some I was a Jewish guy living in and uh, Capernaum or something like that, and I'm like, oh, well, that, you know, I would, I mean, that's got to, I mean, the Messiah's not going to actually come riding on a donkey, right? But sure enough, there he was. He came on a donkey, a very literal donkey. And an interesting, interesting historic perspective, when the, um, when the British took hold of Jerusalem, uh, uh, the late tens, I, I think, I think it was actually at the end of 1917, um, when the British marched into Jerusalem, and they uh, actually, for the first time in like a thousand years or something, took 
Jerusalem was out of Muslim hands and and actually into the hands of a like a Christian type nation. Uh, General Allenby, before they went, before they came into Jerusalem, General Allenby actually dismounted his horse and walked into Jerusalem because he said he said to himself, if the the Messiah himself did not come into Jerusalem on a horse or uh, or on a horse, then you know who am I? To do that, so this is the general of of this part of the British army. You know, steps off off of his horse, walks into Jerusalem. Of course, the Muslim leaders there in Jerusalem, they're there with keys in hands. Here you go, <laughs> because they yeah. knew that they couldn't stand a chance against the uh, His Majesty's British army. But uh, but I thought that I think that's an interesting kind of his, historic side note to go along with that. But but yeah, so it's uh, we we do have a tendency uh, to want to spiritualize things that that do not necessarily need to be spiritualized. Yeah. Yeah, so from the very get-go, I want to say that um, I'm, I'm approaching these texts from a perspective that aligns with a school of thought called dispensationalism, which is a really fancy word for just saying that there, God is unchanging. God never changes. He is constant. Um, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But the way that he deals with humanity is different in different ages. We can see that, um, you know, before the time of Abraham, he was uh, communicating with Noah and, and Adam before that in different ways. Then he approaches Abraham and creates the nation of Israel. And then um, he gives Moses the law, and, and the law was uh, the way that he was communicating with humanity for uh, a couple thousand years, uh, a little bit less than that. Long fulfills the law, and now we're in a period that's different. We're not expected to fulfill the law, so it's not that um, we're not talking about salvation. I don't want to. I don't want to muddy the waters here, but um, we're talking about the way that God communicates with humanity and man is different in different periods of time. And, and right. we get that word dispensation from a King James version translation of a First Peter passage, I think, and it talks about the way that God deals with humanity in, in different times. So. All that to say is that I don't think Israel and the church are ever made synonymous. Um, in fact, Israel and the church are very different words in Greek, and, and we've got even passages like Romans 9 through 11, and if you look throughout all of John's revelation, they're never intermixed. Um, they're never synonymous with, with one another. Um, so I think that they're very different from one another, uh, which would be opposite of the opinion of covenantal or replacement theologians who believe that the church is Israel or the natural evolution of Israel, therefore replacing Israel. So Israel is, is still a thing, which is why it's so important when we look at, uh, when we start digging into probably the, ne- the next part of this broadcast, part two, when we start digging into the scripture and, and maybe making parallels to the 1948 beginning of the the of Israel, that uh, we're talking about a very literal Israel that is separate from the church and a spiritual people and promises that God made to them way back when, 3,000 plus years ago. Yeah, no, that that's that's awesome. And I, I wanted to kind of throw throw this at you, um, is I guess the question, I guess kind of what I seemed, it seems kind of with the covenantal or replacement theology that there does... And I don't want to necessarily say, well, if you're replacement theology, therefore you are 
anti-Semitic or therefore you hate the Jews or, or anything like that. I don't want to go there. But it does kind of seem like that there is uh, some of that mixed in with the covenantal and replacement theology uh, type viewpoint. So in, in, in your research and in your understanding, does it does that does replacement theology uh, kind of lend itself toward an, an anti-Semitic uh, viewpoint, or have uh, replacement theolo- theologians been pretty good about still having a love for the Jews, but saying, no, you know, the church has replaced Israel, and we just have a different view of God's plan for the Jews than, than you do? That's a good question. I, I would say, in general, um, the covenantal and replacement theologians Hard time with that. There are very sincere um, scholars of the word who, you know, uh, who ascribe to that thought, who really do look at the Jews with love, and and their really their their belief that Israel is no longer a spiritual people, that all the promises given to them are going to be fulfilled in the church, um, is really just from a scholarly standpoint. They're you know compartmentalizing. Right. Um, but yeah, there that. That has been thrown around before. Sure. Um, Anti-Semitism has been, uh, in fact, if you look at a lot of covenantal theologians um, who wrote material or studied material after 1948, you see that their thought is very confused because they don't know how to deal with the modern state of Israel. (laughs) Right. Um, It doesn't make sense because in their their line of thought, um, Israel should all be but wiped out. Um, You know, there's no reason for them to spiritual reason for them to exist. Um, it's been 2,000 years since the destruction, uh, well, the last destruction, the most recent destruction of their homeland. Um, they've been without a local you know, place to, to live and uh, identify for thousands of years. There's no reason in their mind that Israel should exist as a modern state. It's a, it's a the miracle without calling it a miracle, because in their mind, it, God's hand is not a part of this at all. It's just a fluke right. of history. Right. And really, I, I would think if I was a covenantal replacement theologian on May 14th, 1948, when Israel declared their independence and voila, 2000 years uh, without being a state. Now there is some state. I would be dealing with some serious cognitive dissonance at that point, because I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, my goodness, how do we do this? And not only that, but we know from. Acts chapter 17, when Paul is speaking before the Oropagus, I don't have the verse right in front of me right now, but that God sets the borders and the boundaries of nations so that perhaps they might seek after him. And so that, of course, would include the the modern state of Israel, too. So uh, I think that it's... uh, it, it really is, I mean, ultimately miraculous. And I think, uh, you know, for a long time, it was kind of easy in some ways to be a replacement covenantal the- theologian, all right? You know, the Jewish people as a whole rejected Christ. Jesus says in Luke 17 that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another people. The mo- Yeah, there's Jews around the world, but the modern state of Israel isn't here anymore, and it's never coming back because, you know, God's moved on. This is a new covenant, a new plan. Right. But we're gonna we're gonna right. talk about covenants. That that's to me the issue of covenants helps make the issue actually very clear. But I, I'm not gonna get too too far ahead. Too far ahead. Um, but Thani, I did want to read one uh, 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 a few things. Sure. So I 
came across this article, and it really, you know, when we're talking about anti-Semitism, but even further that, there's even a, a hatred not just towards Jews, and especially Jewish Zionists, but there's really a, a hatred as well for Christian Zionists and the way mm. that they are talked about and spoken about. Um, and I just want to read a little bit from this. This is from globalresearch.ca. So it's a, it's a Canadian publication. But just to, just to give the listeners an idea of kind of those who are not Zionists and maybe have a, an issue with it, kind of give them an idea of how they feel about people who, who are, who do believe in the regathering of the Jews. And I, but just real quick, so this is by Hans Stelling. This was December 9, 2017. He says, uh, the Zionist evangelical faith is rooted in the belief that God keeps his promises. Okay, so far so good. Quote, God gave the land of Israel to the Jews. He's now quoting as if he was speaking as one of us. God gave the land of Israel to the Jews forever. And God blesses those who bless the Jews and God curses those who curse the Jews. And if we want God to bless us and God wants us to bless America, then we have to bless the Jews. So then he says, it will be noted that the Zionist movement is not altruistic, but self-serving. So that's really how he starts off his article. It will be noted that the Zionist movement is not altruistic, but self-serving. Its support for Israel is not based on any inherent liking for Jews or Jewish Israelis, as if he knows all of our hearts, uh, but rather upon the imperative to follow the words of the Bible, which they hold to be sacrosanct. I mean, essentially what this guy is saying is that following the Bible is, is self-serving. Um, mm. But I'll, before I get into too much commentary, and then he goes on to say, that is, however, not the whole story. The Christian Zionist movement believes that the second coming of Christ will only occur when all Jews have been gathered together in Israel and baptized into the Christian faith. This is an anachronistic belief of fundamentalist Christianity, long jettisoned by a majority of the Christian peoples of the world, but retained by the evangelical Christian minority, particularly in America. And here's really what he says. To Jews, it is anathema, but they accept the concrete political benefits of such a fantasy for without the financial support of fundamentalist Christian Zionist movement in America, there would be no state of Israel. Um, and I'll just finish with this. Evangelical Christian Zionists, in close association with Jewish Zionists, who there's that association with the Jewish Zionists, <laughs> <laughs> virtually control both houses of Congress and therefore the U.S. presidency. This was, of course, before the uh, most recent elections where the Democrats took over the House. Um, they worked not only through the powerful APAC lobby, but through their political influence in the majority of the states of the Union. I just find it so funny when they, they talk about APAC, when like everybody works through lobbyists, everybody works through their connections, and I, I don't know, it's, just, it's, it's really like uh, Jews, uh, everybody else can do lobbying, but the, but the Jews can't, you know. Everybody else can do lobbying for their, in America for their country except the Jews. Um, this means that they have gained an extraordinary extraordinarily undue influence over U.S. foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East. And so, I mean, let's not forget that, I mean, Obama, I mean, with U.N. Resolution 2334 in December 2016, 
I mean, he, I mean, really, on, on one hand, he really stabbed Israel in the back, and that, that's that's another issue. But let's also remember that before he left office, he approved a huge aid package, like I think something to the sum of like thirty billion dollar aid package to Israel as well. So to say that like assistance and support for Israel is just those on the fringe far right is is actually is actually not correct. But support for Israel in America has been quite a quite a quite a bipartisan thing. So but it just it just really goes to show and, and illustrate that uh Zionism uh it's it's basically like if you are a Zionist, we're going to impugn your motives. That this isn't altruistic. It's self serving. I mean that is just uh, it's phenomenal because I mean given the, the history of the Jews and given what they have had to endure to believe that they need a place, they need a, a home country where they can go and, and, be, and be at least, uh, you know, on some level safe and at least a, a free society where they can practice their, their faith legally and um, is, uh, is somehow self-serving. I mean, I would want that for any historically oppressed people groups who, uh, who anywhere they live, they have to deal with, uh, uh, you know, they have to deal with attacks, they have to deal with racism, they have to deal with, um, you know, potential death threats and all this. You know, I would want them to have a safe place to go to also. So I just, I wanted to kind of throw that in there. There's, um, and there's even another, it, it even gets worse than that. I found this, this other article, and I'm just going to do like one paragraph from it, but it's, who are the Christian Zionists in America? And he goes on to say, uh, Christian Zionism is a cult movement in that it's absolute and unconditional idolatry of, quote, the Jews. I don't know why he said, quote, the Jews. That's weird. And Israel carries a death penalty for all other humans except the Jews. As a death cult, the Christian Zionist movement does not offer an excuse for its racism and discrimination among people of the world as its focus of life is to the Jews only. Thus, you will see no protest when Israelis openly kill innocent Palestinian Islamics. I'm not sure if he's talking about if, if these are the innocent Palestinian Islamics that like uh, target other Jews or put on suicide bombs to blow up Jews or whatever. Palestinian Jews or Palestinian Christians, the mindset of the American Christian Zionist is focused totally on what it envisions as, quote, the Jews in Israel and these as portrayed on the United States national TV. So, I mean, that's kind of what, that's just a sampling. There's a whole lot of hate, <laughs> a whole lot yeah. of hate out there for the uh, modern state of Israel and those who support it, impugning even their, their motives for support. I'm not saying that everybody who supports Zionism does so for good reasons, um, but to say that everybody who supports Zionism does so for bad reasons is just, it's absolutely ludicrous, especially as a Christian, if you believe that that is what the Scripture says. And, and a little later, I'll intersperse a very interesting quote from Charles Spurgeon, but to think that it's, you know, it, you, you're doing all this out of bad motives and all this, is it, it's just, uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. It kind of tells to me that, yeah, there is definitely something, something spiritual at work. Um, yeah, you're always going to have, I guess, hecklers, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And I, the one thing I would like to, to comment on those uh, couple of articles is that, you know, this guy, these, 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 these writers are obviously um, coming from a very uh, negative, maybe hateful stance. But, um, you know, Christian Zionism 
you know, the, like you said, there there are some people who abuse it, some people who go too far, some people who sure. are have a very wrong stance or standpoint as to why they want the the Jews to have this land. Um, you know, maybe maybe there are those out there that you know think of it from a self-serving standpoint. You know, I'm not really sure how that applies to us because. Whether the Jew, I mean, for for thousands of years, the Jews didn't have their land, and Christianity is allowed to thrive, and uh, doesn't really affect us too much. And I, from my my perspective, as we look at the scripture, the current regathering that Israel's experienced since 1948 is not the one that brings forth all the the blessings and stuff that we see are promised to Abraham. So yeah, and that's uh, that's going to get real interesting when we dive in dive into all that. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would like to say though that as from my 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 perspective is, I'm I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in the Lord, I'm in Jesus Christ, and my main focus is about the spiritual health of people. Um, having a political asylum, having this 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 country with borders and a government and a safe space, of course I desire that, but but utmost. Above all that, I care about the spiritual health of the Jews. Absolutely. And um, turning back to the Lord and obeying God is going to usher in these blessings that we're about to talk about. Right now, if you look in the Middle East, I think I think everyone would gener- generically agree that there's a, a distinct lack of peace, a distinct lack of sanctuary. Um, even though the Jews have occupied a portion uh a small portion, really, of the land promised to them way back when to Abraham. Um, there, there's a lot, a lot of um, unrest in that area, and I don't think that they're um, experiencing the full extent of the blessing that God has promised to them. So I don't think that. I know I, I've met some Christians who, who like you said, or maybe like these particular articles are criticizing, who go too far and want to give the modern state of Israel carte blanche and just say that everything that they do, everything that Netanyahu is doing is uh, perfect and good. And this is God's will, God's hands behind everything that's happening over there. Don't think that's the case. I think that's a little bit too broad of a gen- Absolutely. Uh, generalization, but um, yeah, to hate on, to hate on the, the idea of the Jews having a homeland and those who, who are outside of the Jewish uh, blood, like you and I, I don't know. Do you have any Jewish blood in you, Ryan? I do not. I do not. Okay, I, neither do I. I don't have any Jewish blood, but I do care for them. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's, yeah it, it is kind of crazy to think that there are those. I mean, really, honestly, it, it's kind of funny. They seem to be criticizing the Christian Zionists for being anti-Semitic, um, maybe self-serving and not really having any real care for the Jewish people. But, in continually pushing against Israel having a home and uh, having for their this safety kind of and protection, right? Outing themselves as anti-Semitic, if right? You will. Right, absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, cool. Well, let's um, let's kind of transition. Um, where, where do you really want to take the? I guess I'll let you. Just where do you want to take the conversation from here? Well, let's let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where does this standpoint? originate that this land that we now call Palestine, I think that's a bit of an unfortunate name, because um, as I understand it, some way, somewhere back in history, that was a name that 
uh, maybe the Romans or some other yeah, so empire. It would, yeah, just I'll, real, real quick, it was the, the Roman Empire kind of circa 130 A.D. after they had conquered Jerusalem and they were in full control and the Jews were scattered. They renamed that region Palestine as basically a way to shame or mock the Jews uh, to basically naming it after their ancient enemies. Yeah. So it's unfortunate that we call it that, but that that area that we call Palestine now um, is it stretches far beyond the uh, current boundaries of modern Israel, the current uh, political boundaries of modern Israel. That land was promised to Abraham many, many years ago. And that's where this idea originates that that land belongs to the Jewish people. So let's go back there and let's look at some of the scripture um, and talk about the the covenants that were made to the Jews. So there were a number of covenants made in the Old Testament times to Abraham and the Jewish people. But the two most important ones that have to do with this topic um, are what are generically called the Abrahamic and the Palestinian covenants. And the Abrahamic covenant is found in... Um, a number of passages throughout uh, Genesis, early Genesis, Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, and 22. And it's basically the same promises that God has made to Abraham, but every once in a while throughout the chapters of the book, he will see that he maybe expands or amplifies some of the promises or blessings that were originally to Abraham. So I don't want to read through every every bit of the Abrahamic covenant, but I just want to read a little bit of a passage from a book called Things to Come by a writer named J. Dwight Pentecost. And he gives a, a, a nice summary, I think, of all of the different blessings that were promised to Abraham that we can uh, glean from these passages in Genesis. So yeah, great. The, quote, the quote reads... Um, the things promised by God are the following. So these things promised to Abraham are that Abraham's name shall be great, that a great nation should come from him, that he should be a blessing so great that in him shall all families of the earth be blessed. To him personally and to his seed should be given the land we call Palestine forever to inherit. The multitude of his seed should be as the dust of the earth. So a lot of people that whoever blessed him should be blessed, and whoever cursed him should be cursed. He should be the father of many nations, that kings would proceed from him. The covenant shall be perpetual and everlasting covenant. The land of Canaan shall be an everlasting possession. God will be a God to him and to his seed. His seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in his seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So this guy, Pentecost, gives... Are really boils it, these passages down to 13 individual blessings or promises that God has made to Abraham. And for the listener, you may think there are, we can kind of spread those out into three categories, because not all of those blessings really apply to the Jews. Some of them are personal blessings, individual promises that were given to the man, Abraham. But some of them were national promises uh, to the nation of Israel, and some of them were even what we would call universal blessings that are uh, blessings that the entire world or all of humanity would uh, enjoy. But for now, let's, I mean, we're talking about Israel, so let's focus on the, uh, 
the national blessings promised to Abraham and his people, the Jews. And that is namely that this land that Abraham was walking through at the time was given to him by God and given to his people, the Jews, his seed, this land that we now call Palestine. And we know that the Abrahamic covenant is something called an everlasting covenant. That word is used in Genesis by the Lord himself that he these promises made to Abraham are everlasting and unconditional. In fact, there's a really cool um, way that God demonstrates to Abraham that no matter what Abraham does, God is going to keep his end of the deal. And that is in chapter 17 of Genesis, we see that uh, Abraham was, was asking the question himself. You know, he had been uh, walking with the Lord in faith for years at this point hearing God continually repeat that he was going to give him this land to possess. And Abraham asked the question, how do I know that I'm going to possess it? And so what he does is he starts to initiate what at the time for his culture was called a blood covenant, which is where he took, um, I believe, three animals um, and two birds, and he would uh, slaughter them. And for the three animals would even, it's kind of grotesque or gruesome for us, but normal for them at the day, he would separate the carcasses in halves and uh, make uh, maybe a few, uh, a small space in between them. And the idea was that whenever you make a blood covenant with another person, for whatever reason, that you and the other person would walk through this, <laughs> this uh, ritualistic location with these carcasses and stuff, you'd walk through them uh, to symbolize that um, you were in in a covenant or a promise. Hey, just another, another, you know, just another, uh, another business deal, right? You make the deal and then just you another slaughter business some deal, animals, right? line the line animals on each side. And the two of y'all walk through all these slaughtered animals. You know, it's just, you know, we do a handshake or a contract and on paper right. and they slaughter some animals and walk through them. It's, it's pr- yeah. different their, times, right? Ankles <laughs> dipped in blood. And, right. you know, it's, yeah, it's the same thing, but that's what they did. And the thing though, is what makes this so unique in the relationship between Abraham and God was that when the time came for Abraham to walk through the carcasses, um, the Lord put him to sleep. And it says that the Lord uh, walked through um, through the that area by himself, which to us should scream that God is going to keep his end of the deal no matter what. Abraham was not even a part of the contract signing. God, God did it all himself, and you know, therefore, all of these promises specifically uh, about the possession of this great land, um, this huge amount of land, um, that God, God intends to fulfill that to Abraham and his people, no matter what Abraham does. So this is an unconditional covenant. It's what we call an unconditional covenant. There's nothing that needs to be done, and nothing that can be done by the Jews or by any other man to nullify these promises that God has made. Yeah. And, I and that question, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I can't just underscore enough for me personally, the understanding of the covenant that God made with Abraham and how it was unconditional and it was not dependent upon him, but it was dependent upon God himself. It was like, Reminds me of that scripture that that says, since he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. You know, it's essentially what God did um, in 
in Genesis when, when he did that. And, and for me, if maybe you're having a, uh, as a listener, you're having a hard time kind of grasping the whole concept, I'd encourage you to really zero in, maybe replay back what, what Thaney said on the topic of the covenant, because as, as he's going to talk about more, there are many covenants, and we have a tendency that God made with Israel and with Abraham and his descendants, and we have a tendency to conflate the covenants. We have a tendency to kind of merge them together when they, they are separate and they are distinct. The Abrahamic covenant uh, was distinct from the Sinai covenant that where Moses received uh, the Ten Commandments and so forth. And so having a, a distinction and understanding that these are actually separate covenants, one not dependent upon each other, is very helpful in understanding if the land promised to the nation of Israel is still uh, alive and well uh, today. Yeah. So that's the Abrahamic covenant, and we're focusing on the one particular aspect of the Abrahamic covenant where God has promised Abraham and his seed, the Jewish people, possession of this land that we call Palestine. And if you look, theologians have done the work to map out the actual boundaries of the land as it would be today, and the modern state of Israel is actually taking up uh, maybe about half of what it what it wow. the, the promise was to them. You know, honestly, I mean, I love Lebanon, but uh, <laughs> if if Israel were to have the full extent of that land that was promised to them by God, um, Lebanon would be theirs. The entire country of Lebanon would be wow. theirs. Wow, a significant part of Syria would be theirs. Uh, Jordan going down south into Jordan would be theirs as well. Um, it, it's a it's a much bigger area than what Israel currently occupies, but that huge land was promised to them by God. And so when we start, like you brought up the articles about Christian Zionism, and um, it's not so much about our agenda as Christians as it is God's agenda right. to give to his his original chosen people the things that he promised to them. Right. So we we look at the Abrahamic covenant. It's very clear to me. It's unconditional. There's nothing that can be done to nullify it or to cause it to change or evolve. I think that the promises that God made are set in stone. And if you look, I mentioned maybe around five passages where the Abrahamic covenant is maybe listed or expanded upon throughout Genesis. Every single one of those includes, and this land you will possess it, and this land you will possess it, and this land you will possess it. So God, and, and throughout the time, I mean, Abraham is dealing, there's disobedience and stuff. He's not perfect, perfectly righteous. He's failing, and God is still reiterating, okay, this land you will possess it. I've made this promise to you. It's going to happen. So that is the Abrahamic covenant. This is where this idea all originates from. We're going to talk maybe a little bit about Zionism and the origins of the Zionist movement. It's not not related at all, really, to um, to what we see in the Bible. But the idea of the Israelites um, having their land and having a political entity um, in this area of the world is biblical, and this is where we get the idea from. Right. So right. continuing on, now the question is, okay, why don't they have it? For the last 2,000 years they haven't had it, before 1948, that is. I mean, even now they don't have the full extent of it. But even, I mean, if you look in the time that the Abrahamic covenants, the Abrahamic covenant was written and throughout history up until 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Israelites had it, didn't have it, you know, back and forth. Um, so the question is, what's going on? Why did God fulfill his promise? And, and then they 
botched it up somehow and now they don't get it anymore or so that there there's a question that has arisen in, in current study of of these passages as to whether or not the Mosaic covenant there's another covenant I'll bring up there was a covenant made with Moses and the Jewish people in uh, a place called uh, I believe it was Horeb or Haram something like that anyway it's it's with the law basically this is where we the we get the idea that the law was created and that covenant that was made with Moses and his people was conditional and if you wanted to be if you wanted to experience the blessings included in that covenant and that promise that God made with them then you had to obey the law and if you didn't then you would experience a number of curses that were outlined in that promise that God had made to them as well right so the question that came about was okay well maybe does the mosaic covenant replace the abrahamic covenant does it take its place does it nullify it this is where we get to something called something that we call the Palestinian covenant. Again, unfortunate name, but it's, uh, it's another covenant that was made. It's outlined in Deuteronomy, and we'll get into that later uh, when we start digging through all the scripture. In Deuter- at the end of Deuteronomy, it makes it clear that the, the Abrahamic covenant, even though the Mosaic covenant existed at that time, the Abrahamic promises of possession of that land and all that stuff uh, was not nullified. It's still in existence. So, in a sense, the, this covenant reiterates the fact that um, God still intended to give the Jewish people possession of that land. Now, the problem is, is this is where things get a little bit more complicated because, and I'm going to use an image that I'm stealing from a friend of mine um, who's a great Bible teacher. And he, he puts it this way, that... Um, Israel owns that land. They have the ownership deed, the title deed, if you will, to that area of land, even though they may not possess it or enjoy it or live on it. The, this Palestinian covenant that we read at the end of Deuteronomy makes it clear that if they want to enjoy that land, if they want to experience the full extent of blessings of you know, all of the you know, crops, miraculously being extremely fruitful, you know, the the growth of their people and having the full extent of that, the boundaries of the original land deal, essentially, that God made with Abraham, that they would have to be faithful to the Lord. Um, right. So it's not that the Abrahamic covenant is null. They still own that land in a sense. In God's mind, it's theirs. But the, their ability to enjoy it, um, to, to live in it, is dependent on their faithfulness, which is why I believe, from my personal standpoint, the, that Israel for the last 2,000 years hasn't had that area of land um, as their own. And even, even recently, throughout 1948, um, like I said, there, there's a significant portion of that land that they don't uh, possess right now. A land that was promised to them that I believe spiritually, some, somewhere in God's mind, maybe he's got books, says they, they own it, even though they don't exist on it. Right. So the, these, are the, these are the covenants, these are some of the scriptural basis that we have uh, to help us identify that um, this land belongs to the Jewish people. 
And, and I think and, if, if I can give a kind of an analogy of that, I was thinking about this, and it really made me think about, you know, you've got uh, the idea of a, of a rich dad who buys his 16-year-old son a Ferrari, and the, he puts the title in his son's name. The son owns the car, but the kid is still living. Uh, he's still under the, the auspices, <laughs> the authority of, of his father, and right. so as long as he's obeying his father and he's in good relationship with, with his father, he can drive that Ferrari all he wants. But if he starts rebelling against his dad and breaking the house rules and all that, the dad still has the authority to take those keys away and he can't use it uh, to the full extent. So if anyone thinks that, you know, maybe this, uh, you know, this is just kind of weird or doesn't make sense that, that God would do that or whatever, it's it's it actually... I. I mean, it's, I think it's very, very uh, plausible, the idea that, look, he's promised it to them, but he's their father. I mean, ultimately, he's yeah. their creator. He's their father. He is their owner. And if they are uh, out of balance, out of bounds in disobedience with him, he has every right to allow them to not enjoy the Ferrari, so to speak. Right. That's a very sensible analogy. Thank you for that. Sure. Yeah, that, that works very well to, to illustrate you know, the fact that they own this land. It's under their name, like you said, but um, there are some conditions on not the possession of the land, that is unconditional, but right. the enjoyment of the land um, requires them to, to do something, which in this case is um, illustrated in Deuteronomy as turning their face to the Lord God and obeying his voice which we'll talk about in a bit, I think, which is why when we look at today, maybe we're not seeing that. If you look at the the political entity, the population of Israel, there is um, a very minute portion of the population that may be referred to as obeying the Lord. But yeah, so that's that's the covenants. That's That's a huge part of the basic understanding that we need to have before we dig into the actual prophecy. We haven't so much as dealt with the prophecy yet, but we have to understand where the basis comes for interpreting the prophecy, that these promises were made to Israel to possess and own this land, to Abraham throughout his seed, and um, that the Palestinian covenant kind of puts a little bit of a twist or maybe a little bit more enlightenment on the nature of that promise, that it's still theirs, None of the covenants, not I mean, honestly, this this is another evidence for me of why the church doesn't nullify Israel, because we see that the Palestinian covenant confirms the promises still exist, even though the Mosaic covenant uh, was interjected in between that. Right. You know, now that we have the church, you could say the church, the, this our age, the church age is interjected in in humanity's history. I don't think that nullifies the promises made to Israel either. So, Right, right. Absolutely. And just to let you know, we're probably going to go, we're about at almost 54 minutes here, so I think we can go about another 10 minutes, and then uh, we'll we'll wrap it up. So do you think we can get through the okay. rest of this in kind of about 10 minutes or so? Yeah, very easily. Okay, excellent, excellent. So now that we've talked about the covenants, and honestly, we've already talked about Zionism a little bit. You interjected some articles talking about Zionism, and I guess I, I thought maybe you could 
give a, a little bit of a background uh, sure. and understanding of where the Zionist movement originated from, um, just so that we don't... Uh, I, I know that in the early 19th century, there was a, a surge of Christian Zionism, Absolutely. which kind of took the ideas of the original Zionist movement and kind of added a, a biblical twist to it, which wasn't there in uh, the original movement ideology. So, you know, if you will, tell us, yeah, remind me, because you know more about it than I do. <laughs> sure, sure. And <laughs> I'm, st- with, I'm, st- I'm still learning. Media. I'm still learning about it. And I mentioned this book before, but there's a phenomenal book by the former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, called Power, Faith, and Fantasy, America's Role in the Middle East from like the 1780s to the present. It was uh, finished in 2006. So um, it, it talks about American power, uh, towards the Middle East, America's faith towards the Middle East, and even America's fantasies toward the Middle East. We don't have fantasies about the Middle East anymore, but we actually used to because the Middle East was a very unknown area. You have that book, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, that really um, kind of mystified and brought uh, um, an aura and a sensuality even to the Middle East that was just mesmerizing to Americas, to the uh, Americans. And you saw that even in the World's Fairs that they would have. They'd have these huge Middle East exhibits. They'd, like, ship over people and animals from the Middle East, and Americans were just enamored by it. Now none of us want to go there except maybe to Israel. Um, and I mean, there's different places we want to go throughout the Middle East, but for the most part it's not seen as an appealing area, but it used to be. Right. But anyway, I'm, I'm kind of uh, I'm going off on a rabbit trail there, but... Ultimately, yeah, it really gained a lot of steam in the early 1800s, but I found a great kind of overview of the history of Christian Zionism on uh, uh, ICEJ, International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem site, and I just want to read a a paragraph from it because it goes back even further um, than the early 1800s, and it says here, "In, in a sense, Christian Zionism goes right back to the first century period as there have always been men and women who have believed and taught its tenets. Many examples of this from history could be quoted, but an article of this nature does not allow us to do it. As a definite theology, however, Christian Zionism had its beginnings among the pietistic Protestants of the 16th century and the 17th century Puritans of England. So now we're going back to the 1500s. In 1587, a man named Francis Kett was burned alive for expressing his belief that the Bible prophesied a return of the Jews to their land. Wow. It, you know, there's not, not <laughs> compared to that, there's not a whole lot of cost of being a Christian Zionist, but this dude was burned um, at, at, wow. the, at the stake for believing that. Moreover, in 1607, Thomas Brightman published a book in Basil called Revelation of the Revelation. In this book, he wrote, quote, What shall, what? Shall they return to Jerusalem again? There is nothing more Certain. Let me read that again, because this was written in 1607, Thomas Brightman. What? Shall they return to Jerusalem again? There is nothing more certain. The prophets do everywhere confirm it. Others of the wow. same period frequently express a similar belief. For instance, Isaac de la Pierre, if I said that, this guy lived from 1594 to 1676, who served as the French ambassador to Denmark, wrote a book wherein he argued for a restoration of the Jews to Israel uh, without conversion to Christianity. And then, of course, it it goes from there. So Zionist roots um, in the West, I mean, really go back, go back a long way. And I think you can kind of see the 
the kind of historical underpinnings for what would eventually be the kingdom of Great Britain's pivotal, a pinnacle role in basically being given the mandate for Palestine and uh, given uh, basically given the opportunity for the Jews to return uh, to their homeland and then and eventually uh, eventually form a state. Um, but so uh, so yeah, that's. Uh, and again, it, it goes it goes on. If we had time, I'd love to kind of go into Warder Crescent and some of the stuff he did in the 1800s. But to end off the broadcast, just to let you know, Thanny, I'm actually going to read a a passage from a sermon that Charles Spurgeon did in 1864. Yeah. So, but before I I get to that, I just want to say if the before I read that, because that's how we're going to end end off. Is there anything you want to say? Uh, to kind of cap things or summary or anything else you'd like to get in before I end off the broadcast uh, with that quote. I think that we're all good on this end. I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, we're. I think for the next broadcast, we'll be moving into starting to dig into the actual prophecy itself, look through some of the scripture, and determine um, the validity of the the claim. I mean, the question is. Uh, was at the beginning of the broadcast, essentially, is the modern state of Israel a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? So I know that I haven't gone to so much as answer that question yet, but I think that for the next part of the broadcast, when we start to dig in the scripture, we can look into that, answering that question. Absolutely. Please, tell me some Spurgeon. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited about that, but I, I, I like how you set, set the stage because there's more than just, okay, let's dive into Ezekiel, let's dive into Isaiah, you know, and all this, because you really have to have a, a framework, and that issue of, and I can't underscore it enough, that issue of covenants is crucial, mm-hmm. I think, to just to understanding the, the entire issue and not conflating things, but understanding that this covenant that God made with Abraham is eternal, it's lasting, and it is, uh, it's unconditional. Right, because he, yeah. he swore, he didn't swear by himself and Abraham, he swore by himself. When he put Abraham to bed and he walked through those carcasses, he said, he said this, is, this is on me. Um, right. And uh, so that's great, that's great. Well, then good. So I want to, um, I, I just found this fascinating as I was doing some preliminary research uh, just kind of on my own uh, in preparation for this broadcast. If there's a preacher... If there's a preacher of the last 500 years that, regardless of your theological standpoint, whether you come from a Calvinist or non-Calvinist or Arminian or, you know, whatever your uh, specific theological viewpoint, one of the, I think, most respected preachers of the last several hundred years is Charles Spurgeon. And until a few days ago, I did not know this, but he actually—well, I'll get to the sermon, uh, just, a, just a small section of it that I'm going to read. But Charles Spurgeon, nobody thinks—I don't, I don't care if you're an Orthodox Christianity, nobody thinks Charles Spurgeon is any kind of weird conspiracy theorist. He's got out there just wild, crazy views or whatever. This guy was a, an A-plus preacher, a, just a theological giant— and uh, very well respected on many, many, uh, in many, many Christian circles. He did a sermon titled, The Restoration and Conversion of the Jews. This was preached on Thursday evening, 
June 16th, 1864. Let me say this. June 16th, 1864. 33 years before there would be the meeting of Theodore Herzl and the first Zionist Congress met in Europe. I forget the exact city where they met, uh, when they met in Europe. So you got to keep this in mind as I read this section of the sermon. Here's what he said. First, so he went through an introduction, the the dry dry bones prophecy of Ezekiel 37, 1 to 10. If you're not familiar with that, I highly recommend looking it up. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 to 10, where God tells Ezekiel to speak to these dry bones that are in this valley and the, you know, hip bones connected to the whatever bone and you know it just got to get you know like the, the kid's song or whatever um but uh so he's so that's his text for the sermon and which is basically about the restoration of israel Here, here's what he says he says first there is to be a political restoration of the jews this is like 80 years before it actually happened israel is now blotted out from the map of nations Her sons are scattered far and wide. Her daughters mourn beside all the rivers of the earth. Her sacred song is hushed. No king reigns in Jerusalem. She brings forth no governors among her tribes. But she is to be restored. She is to be restored, quote, as from the dead. When her own sons have given up all hope of her, then is God to appear for her. I hear that when her own sons have given up all hope of her, then is God to appear for her. I almost feel like I'm reading scripture here, but anyway, um, it's not. It's a sermon from Spurgeon, don't get me wrong, (laughs) but it's, wow. She is to be reorganized. Her scattered bones are to be brought together. There will be a native government again. There will again be the form of a political body. A state shall be incorporated and a king shall reign. Now, technically, they don't have a king, but it is kind of funny. They do call Benjamin Netanyahu King Bibi. He's like just started his fifth term. Well, I, well as of this broadcast on May 28th, when we're recording this, uh, it's, it's actually a question whether or not he's going to be able to form a government or they have to go actually back to, uh, back to elections again, which would be a disaster. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. And he goes on to say, Israel has now become alienated from her own land. Her sons, though they can never forget the sacred dust of Palestine, yet die at a hopeless distance from her consecrated shores. But it shall not be so forever, for her sons shall again rejoice in her. Her land shall be called Baula, for as a young man marries a virgin, so shall her sons marry her. Quote, I will place you in your own land, is God's promise to them. They shall again walk upon her mountains, mountains shall once more sit under her vines and rejoice under her fig trees and they are also to be reunited there shall not be two nor ten nor twelve but one one israel praising god serving one king and that one king the son of david the descended messiah they are to have national prosperity which shall make them famous no so glorious Shall they be that Egypt and Tyre and Greece and Rome shall all forget their glory in the greater splendor of the throne of David? The day shall yet come when all the high hills shall leap with envy, because this is the hill which God has chosen. 
when Zion's shrine shall again be visited by the constant feet of the pilgrim, when her valley shall echo with songs and her hilltops shall drop with wine and oil. If there is meaning in words, this must be the meaning of this chapter. How about that? What do you think about that, Danny? Wow. <laughs> 1864, Charles Spurgeon. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Well, again, thank you guys so much for joining us for part one of what the Bible has to say about the modern state of Israel. Special thanks to my special guest, Thani Abu Hamid, for joining us. Thani, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to do it. Let's, let's talk about some stuff in the next one. All right, let's do it. All righty. Well, you guys have a blessed week, and we will see you all right here again next week as I float somewhere in the Pacific Ocean.